Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you here at First Baptist Church in Pekin, Illinois. Um, I've had a longer history with this church than some of you might imagine. When I was 22 years old, I took a job as a youth pastor right out of Bible college, and I went to uh, First Baptist Church Streeter, Illinois, my home church, which is part of the conservative Baptist denomination that you're a part of. And um, I quickly became fast friends with the youth pastor that you had at that time. His name was Jack Perrine. And, of course, I know you still love and support Jack Perrine and his ministry in Arizona. And so uh, a long history with you and behind the scenes there. Uh, What brought us to the area a number of years ago was I took a teaching job in the area, and we decided that we would live in Pekin, Illinois. And uh, I have seven children, and three of our kids were born at the Pekin Hospital. So shout out to the hospital people here for giving us three healthy kids. Uh, Thanks for what you do. I was asking God, uh, what would you like me to say to the people at First Baptist Church? And um, I don't know how you hear God. I, I don't know if I hear audible voices or anything like that. But in my spirit, I sense these words. Tell my story. Tell my story. So I said, okay, there's nothing more powerful than the story of God. So today, what I want to do is I want to tell God's story. But I want to share with you why this is so powerful in my own life, and I hope this means something to you. I've been a Christian now 35 years, and for a long time uh, I read the Scriptures as a bunch of isolated stories. And you see this. I work with students to this day. Um, when, you, when I talk to students, especially if they've been born and raised in a church, here's what they kind of do. You know, you stand up to talk to them, and they go, Oh, yeah, I know all about Jonah. Oh, yeah, I know all about the creation. Oh, yeah, I know all about Noah. Oh, yeah, I know all this stuff, right? So right away, because they heard the story, they think that they know everything. And I think we do this too. Like, for example, I'm supposed to speak about Easter, right, and uh, Palm Sunday. How many Easter sermons have you heard, people? I mean, it gets a little ridiculous, doesn't it? And so, but one of the things that I've been learning, and um, it's a long story, but one of the things I've been learning is that all these stories aren't isolated stories. There's a lot of stories in the Bible, but here's, my, here's what I'm learning. All of these stories tell one big story, the story of God. It's really, all these stories support the one big story. They call it the meta-narrative. And um, when I say story, I need to clarify for you. When I say story, I don't mean like, you know, uh, the princess and the pea, or, uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet, or, you know, any Disney story, that's for sure, all right? So I, stories are stories. When I say story, I mean God's true account of him and his history of the world. Did you hear what I said? God's true account, not some mythological story, God's true account of his doings in the world, which we are a part of. So what I want to do is I just want to just grapple with the story of God, and then I want, to ask, I want to ask this question. All right, that's the story of God. This is how Easter fits into the story of God. Then I want to grapple with this question. So what? All right, we went to church and we heard the story of God. It's the true story of God, but so what? So that's what I want to do. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> Oh, some of you are going, this is going to be a long story. I'm going to just fly over, but I want you to start where all stories start. God's true story starts, Genesis 1, 
verse 1. Mark it well. This is how God introduces himself to us. It's the first thing we know about God. Ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say that with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And thus opens the opening salvo of the greatest story ever, the greatest true story ever begins. And we begin to realize that this book isn't about us per se. One of the biggest problems we have with this book is we want to come, help me figure out my finances. This book will help you do that. Help me figure out my marriage. This book will help you do that. Help me to figure out how to deal with people who are crazy. This book will help you do that. Maybe that's just my family I'm projecting on you. Um, But seriously, this book will help you do that. But that's not what this book primarily is about. This book is primarily about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The Hebrew word is Elohim, means creator and judge. So God presents himself as this guy who creates this ultimate God who creates. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. Look it up. And all those things will tell you amazing things about God. And God's story begins just like that, letting us know that he is. So I, Aristotle believed that in order to be engaged, the body to be engaged, the, the mind to be engaged, the body had to be moving. So I'm going to get you moving a little bit here. Don't worry, I'm not going to get you out of your seat. We're not going to do calisthenics. But um, I want you to go like this. I want you to say the creation. Say it with me. The creation. And only God didn't use his hands. He just spoke it. So maybe we should do it like this. Creation. Say it like this. Creation. Right. He spoke it. He didn't use his hands. He spoke it into existence. From nothing to something. And the story of God starts with creation. And you can read it in Genesis 1 and 2. It's awesome. You should read it. It is miraculous. It's so beautiful. And as you read the story of God creating, he's building up, you know, the water and the land and then the plants and animals. And he's building up to this grandiose thing. And, and all of a sudden you realize he creates man. That was what he was, that's what he was shooting for. He was, his, all this was culminating. In fact, he gives man uh, the dominion over the earth. And he says, care for it. Work with it. What else do we learn about God? Oh, God is good. Oh, my goodness. What does God do? God puts man in the Garden of Eden. And the word Hebrew uh, for Eden is delight. God puts man, he creates man, and he puts him in this perfect world. Friends, isn't it crazy? This, seriously, it's hard to imagine a perfect world. No death, no cancer, no sin. No perversion, no blasphemy, no lies, no, no, all the things that you and I have grown accustomed to as a part of our journey, none, all those evil things that were not good were not a part of Adam's original journey. And God is just letting the guy frolic, and he's, he says, just don't eat off this one tree. You can eat from all these other trees. Enjoy it, but don't eat off the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because Adam only knew good, and God wanted to protect Adam from evil. Friends, we lose a little piece of our hearts, don't we, when we run into evil. We just do. It steals our innocence. It steals a lot of things from us, more than I think that we can calculate. And so he says, I love you so much, Adam. I don't ever want you to know evil. I want you to know good. I'm good. But you've got to choose. And so when God looks down, he says, oh, my goodness, there's something not good here. I mean, even in my perfect world, there's something not good. Why? Because God was in community. We don't know this in Genesis 1, but if you read the rest of the Bible, you get it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 
was in community with himself. Adam lived among animals. And God said, that's cool, but he's alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And then God went, and there was a motorcycle. No, that's not what he did. <laughs> but that would be cool. Um, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a helper, a person suitable for you, Adam. And he takes that, you know, he puts him to sleep, takes that rib. And the Bible says he forms a woman. It's interesting, two different Hebrew words. He makes man, just makes him, but he forms a woman. And the Hebrew means <laughs> he built a woman. And all guys in this room say what? Amen. That's because why? Then what's God do? God puts him in the garden. There's not a stitch of clothing on him because there's no sin. There's no perversion. There's no weirdness. God provides his wife, and he says to them in this perfect world, be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going, wow, what a great God we have. God is so good to do this. But just don't eat off that one tree. Well, one day, you know the story. One day, and if you don't, this is Genesis chapter 3. One day they're cruising through the garden, and all of a sudden she sees that tree, and this serpent, I don't know if it was a serpent, but we know it was Satan, and however he was disguised, he was snaky. She says, how come you don't eat off the tree? Well, we can't eat off the tree of that, she says. Well, look at it. It's beautiful. It's great. You know, God's lying to you. So what's he do? She pulls something off a tree, a fruit, the very fruit. I don't know what kind of fruit it was. The Bible doesn't say. And she disobeys God. The very thing God said not to do, that's what she did. And when she eats off that fruit, her eyes are opened, and she realizes, wow. And she gives some to her husband who was with her. Guys are always quick. It's a chick that got us into all this trouble. It was not a woman that got us into this trouble. You know who it was? Some weak pacifist man. If your wife is talking to Satan, I would encourage you to interrupt the conversation. <laughs> Say something. And what happens? From that moment on, we experience the fall. That's the second part of the story, right? The first part, let's just sit. The creation. The creation. Do this with me. It's like you're throwing up. The creation. All right, very good. This is the fall. Do this. The fall. So two parts of our story so far, the creation and the fall. So God, because he loves us and he's holy, he has to deal with us. He loves us and he's both. He's not just a God of judgment. He's not just a God of love. He is perfectly both, and he's always both, and he's never one or the other. Did you hear what I said? If we got a God of love, we don't care. Slap me five, God. No, you don't approach God like that. But he's not just a God of holiness. He's a God of love. He's not the heavenly hammer. He is a God of love, and he's a God of justice. So he begins to find out where all this happened. Of course, he knows. God knows. When God asks a question in Genesis chapter 3, it's not because he doesn't know what happened. It's because he's trying to give you a chance to confess your sins. <laughs> That's the only reason he asks a question to give you a chance. Adam says, it wasn't me, it was a woman you created. In other words, it's your fault, God. woman says, it wasn't me, it was a serpent you created. Your fault, God. God looks at the serpent, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And he begins to give the curse, the penalty for sin. He says to the serpent, Satan really is who it is. In verse 15, he says, well, let's look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. With the, you will eat the dust all the days of your life. Now look at verse 15. Get your pens out. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. This is the part I want you to underline. He will crush your head and you will strike or bruise his heel. This is amazing. God, in essence, says to Lucifer, Satan, he says, listen, he says, because of your pride of your own life and now you've helped these people disobey me, from this moment on, there is going to be a curse of sin on all of us. And friends, is that true? Do you see the curse of sin active in your life? Do you see the curse of sin active in this world? I've got seven kids, all of them. It's uncanny have their mother's sin nature. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, she gave it to every one of those kids. And, um, and so, and I may have helped. And, um, and so seriously, kids, from the moment we're born, we have this sin nature. We want us, just like Satan, I want to be God. We want to do it our way. And that's, what we, that's our big problem. I, S-I-N, sin. Take away the S, take away the N. I, right in the middle of it. Me, I, I want it. I'm going to do it. Some people play church like that. They come to church, they think this is their church. I've got news for you. This isn't your church. It's Jesus's. You better remember that. Because he's going to hold you accountable for how you conduct yourself in it. I, I, I. And now, what do we got? This whole mess, the fall. Everybody's living for themselves. And in the middle of casting judgment on Lucifer, he says, someday, you win for now. Someday, I'm going to send someone who's born of a woman who is going to crush your head. It's all metaphorical, people. But listen, this is the idea is this. The very curse of sin that you brought into this world, I am going to send someone who is going to undo that curse. I'm going to send someone who are going to set these people free from sin and death. And from that moment on, from that moment on, the Old Testament, starting at the end of Genesis chapter 3, all the way to Malachi, the Italian prophet. Stay with me. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. God hints at who is coming to save us. And it starts at the end of Genesis chapter 3. God says, you can no longer be a part of the Garden of Eden because I fear that you will take the fruit, right? Watch this. You will take the fruit uh, of the the tree of life and live forever in a a sinful state. So God says, by grace, I'm going to kick you out because I don't want you to do that. I want to redeem you. I'm going to kick you out for now, but I'm going to clothe you before I send you out into the harsh world. Does anybody know what they get clothed with? Animal skins. How do you get an animal skin? You kill an animal. There was no death in this story up to this point. Right? Death was not, death was, they didn't even know what it was. Nothing died in the Garden of Eden. Now, now death happens. What? God takes the skins off of animals and he puts them on them as protection. Watch this. Every time sin, this is all throughout the whole Old Testament, and this is what God is pointing us to. Every time we sin, blood must be shed. Every time we sin, blood must be shed. 
The whole Testament, the tabernacle, what's it about? Animal sacrifices. Every time we sin, blood must be shed. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, it looks back on all the Old Testament, and here's what it says, Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. This is deeply in the Old Testament. And so immediately Adam and Eve realized if we're ever going to approach God again, we've got to do it on his terms, and he requires blood. How do we know this? Well, the, they start having kids. Remember? Cain and Abel. Cain works the ground, no blood. Abel works with the fat of the rams and the lambs and all these things. God says, approach me the way I want to be approached, and I need you to approach me as broken sinners who need a blood sacrifice. So Abel brings his blood sacrifice. Cain brings his own work of his hands. God tries to interrupt. You know the story. You ought to read it. The first five, six, seven, eight chapters of Genesis tell you all this. And God tries to intervene, and Abel is so mad that God will not accept his approach. Friends, this is a deep, deep, this is all of, listen, this is what this is. You and I can't say, I will approach God how I want. This is the deep, deep, God is the hero of this story. He is the provider of the story. And here's the deep, deep thing that you've got to walk away with. He is God, we are not. And you know what the problem is? We want to be God. We want to do it our way, not just in our life and in the church and everything else. We want to do, we think our ideas are the best, whatever, everything. We, just, we th- think it's all us. And so Cain says, I'm just going to do whatever I want. God doesn't accept his offering. He gets mad. When Cain realizes he didn't do it God's way, it's almost like, now I'm, I don't want to read too much in the passage, but it's almost like Cain goes like this. God, you want a blood sacrifice? I'll give you one. Hey, Abel, let's go out in the field. And like in total rebellion against God, he kills his brother. Now, friends, I could talk for a long, long time, which I will not. You can ask the first service. We got out on time. But I could walk you through the Old Testament, but I think you ought to read it. I think you ought to dig into the Old Testament. I think you ought to make it through Leviticus. God help us. But that book of Leviticus tells us how to live in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. So it's critical. Those, those are all Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. And I think we write off this stuff. This is what we, this, You're like, well, this is some Easter story. I'm getting there. But you don't understand Easter until you understand this. Do you hear what I said? One last story out of the Old Testament. Moses is now going to take the people out of Egypt. And the last plague is the plague, right? The plague of the death of the firstborn. God allows this death angel to come down, and the only way you can get out of that is if you take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, kill it, eat it, take some of the blood, and place it over the doorpost, right? Place it over the doorpost. Watch this. Over the doorpost. What's that look like to you? Now watch, the death angel comes down. If he doesn't see the blood, every firstborn of everything dies. If he sees the blood, what's he do? He passes over it. Why? Because of the blood of the lamb. Fast forward. There's this young teenage girl pledged to be married. She's found to be with child, but she's never known a man. We read about this in Matthew chapter 1. This is Christmas. Some of you are going, wow, we got, at least we're at Christmas now. That's good. I'll get to Easter. 
And here we are. You know how all that unfolds? I love the way the angel says it to her. Because now we move to the next part of the story. Oh, let me back up. Let's do the hand motions. Ready? The creation. Say it with me. The creation. The fall. Genesis 3.15. I'm going to send someone who's going to crush your head. That's the promise. Do the promise. Promise. Cross your heart. Say it. Promise. Together? The creation. The fall. The promise. That's called proto-evangelium. Proto means first. Evangelium means good news. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel. I'm going to send someone who's going to undo the sin, curse of sin and Satan. There's this young unmarried teenage girl, but she's legally married, but not, never been with a man, finds herself pregnant. And the angel says to her, you, you are going to be born, you're going to give birth to a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, which means Savior. And then it goes on to say, later you will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. Watch this. God says in Genesis 3.15, someday I'm going to send someone born of a woman who's going to undo the curse of sin and Satan. Guess who God sent? This is crazy. This is so crazy. You know who God sent? Himself. God sent himself. God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus our Savior. What is Jesus but God in a bod? Right? Hypostatic union, fully God, fully human. And you know the story. He makes disciples, and those guys make disciples, and that's why we know the story. And, and, uh, and what's he do? The last, the, the last week of his earthly life, he rides into Jerusalem. And they kill him. But they didn't. He gave himself up. You know why? Because he understood he was... The Lamb, as John the Baptist put it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what's he do? He allows himself to be crucified in this mock trial. It's so ridiculous. And, uh, but it doesn't matter because he's on a mission from God to redeem mankind. He is the, 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 uh, the prophecy fulfillment of the proto-evangelium that one day somebody was going to come and undo the curse of sin and Satan. And what's he do? He dies on the cross, sheds his blood, and on Easter Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because he is God, and God existed before death, and you can't kill God. So I say to you now, so what? There's the story. There's the story. Watch. Let's do the hand motions. Ready? The creation, the fall, the promise, the rescue. Do it. The rescue. Say it. The rescue. Right. So what? Well, friends, listen. This is why I didn't want to just preach that part of it. That part's awesome. The answer to so what is your life. Here's this crazy story in this. It's a true story. It found me in the housing project where I was growing up. My mom and dad had divorced. And we, I had a sister by then. And my mom, no, there was no God on my father's side. There was no God on my mother's side. And this, the story of this book, over 2,000 years later, translated from this little place from Palestine, Right? This is little, 75, about 75 miles long, Israel, right? 
this little story, this thing about this ultimate God finds itself all these years later, crosses the ocean, crosses cultures, crosses language barriers. And it comes directly face-to-face with my mother who knew nothing about God. My mom was working at a tavern because that's what everybody in my family did. It's what happens when you don't have God in your life. You look for all the answers and everything else, and that doesn't lead you anywhere. And so my mom was working at this tavern, and she had a friend who was just like her, single mother, bunch of kids, um, living the wildlife, and working at the tavern making money. And she had been there. My mom's friend's name is Jerry. She had been there longer than my mother, and so she earned a vacation, but she didn't have any money, and she had kids. So she asked her sister if she could go visit her on a vacation, but she didn't know that her sister had recently received Jesus Christ as her Savior, and so her sister said, we'd love to have you visit with us. (laughs) Right? She goes, good. So they ended up there. The first, she was there two weeks. The first week, she could barely stand all the Jesus talk. But somewhere about after that first week, Jerry received Christ as her Savior. Her sister told her this story that I just told you about Jesus. And she received Jesus Christ as her Savior. Then Jerry, they, then she just, she basically for the next week, she discipled Jerry and basically got her into the Word of God. So when Jerry shows up, when Jerry shows up back in our hometown, she walks into the tavern and she says, I quit to which everybody is surprised. My mom's surprised. Uh, maybe they thought she found a better job or whatever, and they began to probe her. The boss said, you can't quit. You've got, you know, you got to stay here and give me a couple weeks' notice. And so that when they started digging a little bit deeper, they found out Jerry wanted to quit because basically Jerry said, you know, I, I tried to find it in men. I couldn't find it. I tried to find it in alcohol. I couldn't find it. I smoked a lot of dope. Uh, I couldn't find it there. She says, you know what? Everything I'm looking for I found in the person of Jesus Christ. And they just went, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> right? You've got to be kidding me. So they said, Jerry, you have, you have to give us two weeks' notice. And she said, fine, I'll work two more weeks here because that's what I signed up. But she said, every time somebody asks me why I'm leaving, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And so for two weeks, that tavern became a ministry center for a woman who was trying to get out of the business of bartending. And my mom hated her. Oh, my goodness. This was my mom's best friend because all she could do is talk about Jesus. My mom despised her. My mom couldn't wait for those two weeks to get over. You know, there's nothing like a light when you're living in darkness, right? You don't want any, you don't want to see anything. And my mom was so glad when it was over. You know, she was like, done. But you know what happened? <laughs> Jerry started showing up at our apartment in the housing project. I was a little guy. I know I was only about seven or eight. My sister was probably four or five, and... I remember my mom saw Jerry pull in, and, man, she was so mad. She was cussing, and she was pulling the shades, and we closed the door, and my mom said, you guys go upstairs and hide in your room, and don't make any noise until Jerry leaves. Jerry, we went upstairs. I watched her get out of her car. She was carrying a black book. She came and knocked on our door for about five minutes, knew we were in there, knew we weren't going to answer. And my mom said, good, that'll teach her. About every two or three days, Jerry would pull into the parking lot, (laughs) and my mom would cuss, and we'd all hide. (laughs) Now, you know what's funny about that story is I've been on a lot of pastoral calls. Can I say something to you? We know you're in there. (laughs) Let us in. We will love you anyway. One day, Jerry, this went on two or three weeks. One day, Jerry pulled up, and we didn't see her, and she was standing at the door, and the door was open. Here's what I remember. I want you to hear this. Jerry had probably been a Christian about a month. She, brought, she came in, 
She sat down at our kitchen table. Both her and my mom smoked and drank coffee. And the smoking evangelist led my mom to Jesus Christ. I mean, I didn't say she went to church. I said, my mom met the person of Jesus Christ. And it changed her immediately. Immediately. I love to say that I got the best Christian education a kid could ever get. I didn't know a single Bible story at this time. I didn't know anything about God. But I got the greatest Christian education a kid could ever get. I watched Jesus Christ take a wild living bartending woman and transform her into a crazy Jesus freak. I mean, you know how she threw herself into sin? She now threw herself into Jesus. The Bible says those who love much, who, those who are forgiven much, love much. And my mom took that same intensity for sin and partying and totally threw it into Jesus. And I guarantee you right now, I know where that woman's at. She serves in a little Baptist church in our hometown. I guarantee you she's loving on everybody, hugging everybody. I just know who she is. I know what she's doing. I don't have to guess where she's at on Sunday. Because this has been her story, and she's lived it from this moment. Friends, you and I, that was the beginning of the end for me. Have, we have a story. And my mom saw, you know, listen, I, I quit being in tavern. She wouldn't even let my dad take me to a tavern anymore. And so my dad said, well, what are you going to do? She said, well, if you take him on the weekends, because they had this divorce thing going, if you take him on the weekends, you've got to drop him off at church. I, wanna, I want him to start going to church. And so we started going to the church, the church that I became youth pastor at many years later. And um, it was so fascinating because I went to church. I didn't see a single pinball machine. And it just didn't hold, the, 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 uh, it didn't hold my attention very well. And so, but my mom, oh my goodness, she's sitting in the pews, and she's, this is what I would watch her. This guy would get up there and talk and talk and talk, and, and, uh, and she would be writing notes. I didn't even know God, it was, God thought it was okay to write in his book, but my mom's making notes in it, and it's all red in her, yellow in her book, man. She is all over this, man. She is all, and I'm watching, whatever it has happened to her, it was real. But it wasn't real for me. And so, you know what my mother did as I got to be a young teenager? I began to live more like my father than my mother. My mom pulled out the big guns. <laughs> you know what my mother did? She started praying for me. So you're here today and you don't know Jesus and your mother's praying for you? This is your day. You're here today and your grandma's praying for you? This is your minute. Because those women know how to talk to Jesus. So my mom basically prayed a couple of guys my own age into my life who loved Jesus, and next thing you know, I'm in my quiet of my bedroom receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior. Can I tell you something? Holy cow, it has been such an amazing ride. Um, nobody's ever graduated from high school in my family. But I have a master's degree in teaching and leadership now. Nobody's ever stayed married in my family. My sister has, but nobody else in our family has. They're all divorced. I celebrate 25 years. Glory to God. My secret, find a woman who loves Jesus and she'll put up with you. That's huge, right? That's huge. I'm certainly not repeating to this. I got my own dysfunctions. Do you? 
but I'm not repeating the dysfunctions that were handed down to me. Can I tell you something? Jesus, the Jesus of this book, has broke the cycle and the curse of sin and dysfunction in my life so that my kids at least have a fair chance. God's still working in them too. But at least they have a fair chance. And I say that to you because I want you to know Easter's not just a story to me. And I don't think it is to you. What would be awesome is if we could just spend a long time in this room hearing our stories. And all of us have an Easter story, right? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Paul says, I've delivered unto you that which was given to me, how that Christ died, was buried, and what? Rose again. And when we believe in that Jesus, it transforms your life. So this isn't, I just like, oh, I got to come up with some message to preach. No, 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 no. I pulled it out of my soul. You know why? Because this is real to me. This is real. And I know it is to you. So let me help you with, so what? Three things. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you about, but this is how I want to bring it in for a landing. And I've got three challenges for all of you. Are you ready to be challenged? Hello. Are you ready to be challenged? Number one, I want you, if you know Christ as your Savior, and I'm talking to every one of you, I want you to tell your story to your kids or grandkids today. Today. Some of you say, Bill, I don't have that crazy story like you do. (laughs) I wished everybody had this story. I was born and raised in a Christian home, and I accepted Jesus at four thanks to my grandmother, my mother, or my Sunday school teacher. That's the story I wish everybody had. And when you say that, you disregard the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection because, friends, it's the same blood that saves the prostitute that saves the Sunday school kid who needed to know Jesus. You, if you know Jesus, have a story. And if you know Jesus because you have this legacy in your life of people who know Jesus in your family, share the legacy. Trace it back and accentuate how good has been to you, how good God has been to you in your family. You can trace it back to, that's who I want to be in my family because I, I, now I have my mom and me and now we got our kids. I want to live long enough so that my great-great-grandkids say, oh, crazy Grandpa Allison, all he can do is talk about Jesus. I'm already crazy. All I need is the age. And I want to be that guy. Why? Because that's ideal. That's the way it should roll through our families. So tell your story. I don't care if it's just one minute. Tell your story. Tell it often. Tell it to your kids. Even if you're married and you don't have any kids at home, tell it to each other again. Tell your story. You have an Easter story, tell it. Secondly, read God's story. I know so many guys who, I don't know what to do with my family. I don't know how to lead. Okay, everybody, I don't care who you are. Today, start today. I want you to read the book of Matthew starting in chapter 21. Why 21? Chapter 21 in the book of Matthew begins the last week of Jesus' life. 
It's the last week of Jesus' life. So we got a week till we can celebrate Easter. One chapter a day, starting today, Matthew chapter 21, I want you to read one chapter a day, but I don't want you to read it by yourself. I want you to read it together. Read the last week of Jesus' life as portrayed by Matthew in 21 through 28. When you come next Sunday, you should have read chapter 28, which is the last chapter. And guess what? It's the resurrected Jesus Christ commissioning the disciples. That's what I want you to read before you come to church next Sunday. But I want you to read one chapter a day. So tell your story. Read God's story, Matthew 21 through 28. This is big. Between now and next Sunday, number three, I want you to invite someone in your life to come to church with you next week. Your pastor is going to share the gospel. Your pastor is going to tell the story of the risen Jesus Christ. And did you know, listen to me now, I know it's getting a little uncomfortable, but if we're not going to get down to the nitty-gritty, why do we spend this time together? Let's quit dinking around. There's a whole generation of young people that want to see us take this seriously. Let's lead the way. You know, the statistics of research they've done says that most non-church people have never been invited to church. And then they ask them, if you were invited by a neighbor or a coworker at work to come to church, would you come? And it's always ridiculously positive. Yes, 75%, 80%. It varies on what study, but it's always ridiculously positive. If it was somebody I knew and trusted and lived you know, in the same neighborhood or worked with or a family member, I would go to church. Now, friends, people go to church on Easter and Christmas. You can't ask for a better time to invite people to come to your church. I assume, look at me now, I assume you believe in this church. You're here. Well, then I would encourage you to bring somebody with you next week. At least invite. And I'm talking to each of you. This isn't for the young people. This isn't for the old people. This is for the all people. Bring somebody to church next Sunday. Invite them with you. And then, for crying out loud, Invite them to lunch afterwards and love them, encourage them, hang out with them, get to know them. Do something crazy. Live like Jesus. Love God and love people. So let's review. Let's do the story. Somebody's going to say, well, what'd you do today in church? I want you to go. The creation. Say it with me. The creation, the fall, the promise, the rescue. And then I want you to focus on these three things. Watch. I want you to tell your story today. Today. At lunch. Today. I want you to read one chapter today, Matthew 21, and one chapter for the next week. Eight days. Eight chapters. Then, I want you to think, God, who do you want me to bring and invite that person to church? You want to come to Easter service with me? With me? Did you hear what I said? Do you want to come to Easter service with me? That's how you do it. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Before I close in prayer and release you, um, I want you to ask God one question. I want you to listen to what he might say to you. Here's the question I want you to ask God. I'll pray for you after this, but I want you to pray now. In the quiet of your heart, I want you to ask God this. God, what do you want me to do about this? 
Go ahead and say that to him right now in the quiet of your heart. And then listen. God, what do you want me to do about this? Say it. Lord, thanks for your true story. Thanks that it captured us. Now, God, we want to extend it. We want to be like Jerry, who takes it in and then overflows it to the people in our life. Thank you for bringing the gospel close to us in relational form through people we know. Help us to be those people now and the people we know. Lord, I pray for every family here, for people with kids at home. I pray that today will be a day of sharing stories, their own story, how they came to know Jesus, how that message was brought to them. I pray that they would also open up the Scriptures in Matthew 21 and begin to study Palm Sunday and all the things that happened in the last week of Jesus. And I pray that they'll read it and discuss it together. And then, God, I pray they might even have just a family meeting about who are we going to invite the church next week to come with us? Father, if there's grandmas and grandpas here, I want to pray that they'll do that with their grandkids. And, and wherever, wherever anybody goes after we leave here, let that be the topic of conversation. Lord, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you that the gospel found us. Now, Lord... You've left us here to follow in the steps of our Savior who made disciples, who made more disciples. Would you please not overcomplicate that for us and we can just go leave here engaging you and engaging other people in the ebb and flow of our lives. I want to pray, God, that you would help this church to believe that living like this, the simplicity of like Jesus, will change this community. It will change lives. Thank you that you are alive, and because you are alive, no matter what happens on this earth, we have hope. Not a hope that is like I hope, but a hope that's certain. In Jesus' name, amen.